Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. I can see that we're in the heart of summer and that many of our people are in beautiful and excellent uh, places, I I hope. Uh, I don't think of Birmingham, Alabama in the middle of the summer as being one of those, but I'll be there and uh, look forward. I'm just glad we can meet together again at these things. I've missed seeing so many friends around the world. Let me tell you where we're headed for the summer while you are in and out and uh, back and forth. I have had a dream for some time to do a sermon series in which our whole pastoral team participated. So all the folks who, uh, who meet regularly to make plans for the church, all the people who work with me who are part of our core pastoral team, that each of them would have an opportunity to preach, but in tandem, that we do this in, in partnership. And, uh, and the, 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 the title of this particular series is called Show Places, which I'll deal with in a moment. Now, the way this will work is I'm opening and I'm closing. I'll be in a garden both times, interestingly enough, though here talking about a, a garden. And next week, I'll be working with Robin Miner as we talk about how God shows up in the wilderness of our lives. But between that sermon next week and the last one, I'll be facilitating, coordinating, writing all of the sermon-based notes uh, for your groups, but watching as members of my staff team work together in pairs to present to you in really creative ways all the places, or many of the places, I should say, in the Bible where God shows up. And that's why the, the theme of this particular series is show places. Now, I, I was shocked to discover that a number of people on that pastoral team had never heard the term show place. You've heard it, right? You've heard the term show place. You know what this, this means. And I had to explain to them what a, what a show place is. But basically, for our purposes, it's, it's a place where, where God is present and visibly and tangibly so. You know, I wonder if you can finish this line. I bet you can. I, the earlier f- service, again, they had a hard time with this one. I was surprised. I thought everyone could finish this. 80% of success is? Say it again like louder, you know, with enthusiasm. 80% of success is? Just sewing up. Now, this is what Woody Allen purportedly said, and Woody Allen says he did say this, and so uh, others have probably said it as well, and I don't know about the percentage or exactly what he meant. I, I, I presume that Allen meant showing up in the right places, at the right times, in the right ways, because I'm, su- I'm supposing you show up somewhere all the time. So it's showing up in the pivotal moments, in the pivotal places in people's lives. And, you know, all of us have places that we need to show up, right? Your presence here means a lot. Just that you're present here today, it means a great deal. There's no replacement for the ministry of presence. And all of us have relationships in which we're expected to show up. You may have close friendships. I'm sure in your workplace this is true. You have friendships that that are significant as, as parents. We're expected to show up as kids. We're expected to show up as, as couples, <clears throat> as a husband or a wife, we're expected to show up. Let me tell you about a time that just jumped out in my mind when I thought about showing up. And I have to contextualize this a little bit and tell you that I became part of something I knew absolutely nothing about as a result of the involvement of my children. Now, I, I should say this. 
You won't know if you have young children until years from now when your kids are a little grown like mine are and married and they're out on their own. What an incredible benefit it was to have grown up here. To have been reared in this area, the advantages are things we take for granted. It is amazing to be around everything that you're around here. And for us, one of those things was crew. Now, I wonder if you know much about rowing crew because I knew absolutely nothing. And I'd seen it in the Olympics, you know, so I knew that people who came from certain prep schools and and who came from certain Ivy League type universities, that those were the persons who were likely to row crew. I found out why later. It's very expensive. But as I watched those sports, I thought, well, this is something I'll just never know anything about. When I was doing my doctoral work at Princeton, as I would study out along the river, I'd watch the crew teams go back and forth and back and forth. And Princeton's had a really successful program, but I knew nothing about that. You might be more like I am. Where I grew up, we had baseball, football, and basketball and track. That was sort of a, a side thing, but those were the sports. None of them, catch this, just listen carefully, none of them was played on a Sunday. No, we didn't do that. We practiced in the evening. We played on Fridays, once in a while on Saturdays. We had all sorts of sports, but those were the ones. And if you played sports, you, as I did, played those sports. So one day, my elder daughter, Marley, the bookworm in the family, who'd never played any sports to speak of, she danced a little, she'd done a few things, but sports was never her thing. She doesn't like to watch sports even today. She doesn't watch them. She didn't attend basketball and football games in high school or college. That's just not what she wanted to do. The women marry folks sometimes, I guess, don't go. Whatever the case may be, it was just so different than my experience growing up. And one day she comes home, a freshman in high school, and she says, I think I'm really missing out on something because I haven't played a team sport. So I'm going to find a team sport. Well, Debbie and I knew that would be difficult because if you haven't played sports as a child, you haven't ever played on a field. She didn't play soccer or anything. She doesn't have a sense of how a field works, how a game works. And we said, well, honey, you know, just so you know, all of your friends have been playing these sports for years, at least in middle school and and probably before. It might be hard to break in. I don't care. I'm going to find my sport and I'm going to do it. Now, when Marley sets her mind to something, It's going to happen. So we just watched and we waited. One day she comes home. She says, I found it. This is what I'm going to do. We said, do tell. Tell us about it. And she said, crew. I'm going to row crew. And this is how much money I need. My jaw dropped to the floor. I'm like, you must be kidding me. Crew, as it turns out, is a sport in many high schools in this area. But it's what we call a club sport. And by club sport, what that means is the parents foot the bill, not the county. That's all the difference I can find because they are competing against the same schools, going to the same events, etc. But this was a club sport. Debbie said, you know, this is important to her. Let's let her do it. And she loved it. From the beginning, she loved being on the water. Now, I do have to tell you that the crew team she arrived on at Langley High School was, well, in a word, lousy. They tended to lose all the time and to win very little, and they had a good time, but there wasn't much happening there. We revamped the coaching core. Debbie wound up being president of the club for several years. We wound up changing things up, buying new equipment, which cost 
money. This stuff, ridiculous. These shells, they call them the little boats that they row. Uh, Tens of thousands of dollars for a piece of fiberglass. It's preposterous, but that's what they do. And this team got better and better and better. So that Marley's sophomore year, they, they really weren't too bad. They were at least competitive. So Kelly comes home one day, our youngest daughter, and she says, I'm tired of the knee injury. She's a pretty good soccer player, but she kept tearing menisci. I guess that's the plural of meniscus. And as she did, she said, I'm tired of that. I can't do it anymore. The doctor said it would keep happening. I'm going to row crew too. It was a little bit of an adjustment for Marley. But actually, it worked out great. Every day they went to the Akaquan together after school. Every day they would be practicing together. And before long, they wound up in the same boat. Each of them rode sometimes an eight, sometimes a four, if you know anything about crew. And they got really, really good. So Marley's senior year and Kelly's junior year, the team was really competitive winning one regatta after another. And the coach started to say, I think we have a great chance to go to states and maybe a really good chance to go to nationals if you guys stay on this bent. And there came one Saturday, it was all important. Now, you have to understand, in case your kids or grandkids or whoever ever row crew, a regatta takes up a whole day. You arrive at the Occoquan or on the Potomac at about 7.30 in the morning and you're there until late evening. It's an all-day event. It's a big deal. You get to know the parents. It's kind of fun, but it takes a lot. And so this particular Saturday, I can't remember which regatta it was, but that team, as looking like this, was going to row. And if they won, they couldn't just place. They had to win that regatta, that event, in order to go to states and then potentially to to qualify for nationals. Now, the problem is, as often happens in many of our lives, we have other things we have to do too. And I had a speaking engagement on that particular weekend that I'd been committed to for a year and a half or so. And and Debbie was supposed to be there too. And so she and I were going to miss this regatta in my speaking career, in my need to speak. We were going to miss this this particular one. And Debbie started saying a few days before, honey, it's it's really not good that we're going to miss this one. I mean, this is really important. We should go. And I said, honey, what are we supposed to do? I mean, this is just the way life works. The grandparents will be here with the kids and they'll go and it'll, it'll be fine. So we go off for the weekend. And on that Saturday morning, I spoke. And when I finished speaking, Debbie had gotten by that time in the day, she'd gotten the list of when the races were in the day and she runs up to me and she grabs me and she says, I just got the lineup and if we leave right now, I think we can make that race. Well, what do you think we did? We hopped in the car and we went just a little over the speed limit and we flew back up I-95, as I remember, to get to this regatta, which happened to be in Occoquan, so south of D.C., and we are going to make it. Debbie keeps looking at the clock and she's going, I think we're going to make it. We're going to make this. I know we're going to make this. We are. We're going to make it. But we didn't want to tell the kids just in case. And so we didn't announce to them we were coming. We just kept on moving as fast as we could. And then we hit Occoquan. Now... Any of you who've lived here for any length of time know that Occoquan is known for several things. 
It is known first and foremost for the beautiful body of water that is located there, and secondly, for the quaint little city, which is oh, sort of fun, little township that's kind of fun, eat lunch there, I've done a wedding there or two, it's a nice place. But most of all, Occoquan is known to you for, and we hit it, the Saturday lineup. Bang! It just stopped dead right in the tracks. And suddenly, are we going to make it? Are we not? We're creeping along, creeping along, creeping along. Finally, we hit the exit. We jump off. I go as fast as I can to the parking lot at the Occoquan. But if you know anything about crew, you get to the parking lot and you're not there yet. You still have to go somewhere to get to the water, which in the case of Occoquan is through this huge wooded area down a bank. We ran the pass, ran down to the water, and just as we got to the water, looking at a picture like this, in fact, this may be that race, looking at a picture like this, the horn sounded and the race started and we were there. Marley and Kelly would later tell me they weren't sure I was there, but they knew Debbie was there because she was hollering so loud. I'm not sure if that helped them, but it sure didn't hurt. And it didn't look good because in order to qualify for states, they needed to beat their arch rival, Walt Whitman, which is probably the best public crew team in this area, one of the best in the nation. They had to beat them on that day. And their times were better. They knew they could do it, but it was going to be tough. And right out of the gate, one of the crew members caught a crab and Walt Whitman started to pull way ahead. Debbie's hollering and screaming, go, 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 go. And they went. And toward the end of the race in the last leg, they walked. Do you know what that means? They walked the Walt Whitman boat and came in about half a length or a little less over the line ahead. And we were all ecstatic. That qualified them for states. They ended up qualifying for nationals. It was a really fun and great year. And Debbie turned to me and said, aren't you glad we didn't miss that? And I said, well, yes. Because there's nothing like being there. There's nothing like showing up at the big moments in your children's lives or your spouse's life or your friend's life or your parents' life or your church's life. Presence is everything in some instances. And to have been there to see that and to share the moment with them, it was a huge deal. It was worth all the aggravation and the almost stroke I had getting there. Showing up. Sometimes we have to show up. And if you can't think of times that you had to show up, you can certainly think of times that other people showed up for you when they were present at just the right time in just the right place. And you know, when someone shows up in your life, you will never forget it if it happens at a particular juncture, at a particular point. Now, this series is about showing up. It is about God showing up. And it's about how we are called to show up in God's name. And I think we can learn a great deal about who God is and what God wants from us. In fact, let me say it this way. God shows us a lot when God shows up. So again, the term is show places. Now, a show place is a place of interest that is known for its beauty and its excellence. Look it up for yourself if you'd like to after the service, not right now. If you Google show place, my staff was shocked to discover 
you'll find the word everywhere. There are cabinet companies and construction companies named Showplace, art museums named Showplace. There is a brand new movie theater in Tyson's. Have you been there yet? It is really, really nice, and the tickets are relatively reasonable, called the Showplace. It's an icon theater. If you go looking today for the term Showplace, I need you to know this because some of you might be interested, you will find several homes that are listed as Showplaces. Maybe they're open today. So if you want to go to L.A., for example, you can buy this show place. Does that look like it might be in your cost factor? No, not me either. So I'll just have to admire that show place from afar, afar. Any of you who are realtors, have you ever listed a place as a show place? It's beautiful. This one's a little closer to home. It's on the East Coast, at least. It's in New York. But if you're interested, it's open today. Today, you can still get up there if you hurry right after the service. This, this is more my speed. How about you? That's a show place. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of excellence. Now, here's the thing. If we talk about beauty, and too often we don't have this conversation, we're talking about God. God is the very definition of beauty. He defines the standard of beauty. We know there is such a thing as beauty because God created it and placed in our hearts a desire for it. And we talk about excellence. We are talking about the ways of God. When we think about excellence, we talk about God as the very definition. So beauty, excellence defines a place. Then I would say any place that God shows up, wherever God shows up, let's call that a show place. This is the place where God shows himself, where God manifests himself tangibly, sometimes visibly, sometimes audibly, sometimes symbolically, but in some way, shape, or form, God shows up. Now, theologically, if you're interested in theology, we call God showing up a theophany. It's a great word. Theophany is Greek. If you translate it, it means the appearance of the deity, literally translated, the appearance of the deity. So all through the Bible, we have these stories of theophany. In fact, the Bible is so loaded with theophany, you could say that's what the book is about. And that's no surprise because it covers a vast expanse of time. But what we see here are the highlights of God's people encountering God and following God's leadership. Some people will come to me occasionally and say, you know, how come God doesn't work in the ways he did in the Bible? And I say, well, he does. And they say, but look at it. It happens all the time there. Right, but you've got thousands and thousands of years compressed in one book. Do you think they told you this morning I got up and ate breakfast and then I did my work and ate dinner and went to bed? No, that's just another day. They're telling you the high points of God's work, the theophanies, the appearances of God. Of course, the ultimate of those is the coming of Jesus, who became flesh, did the Son of God, and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. In fact, so ultimate is this that a lot of New Testament theologians will call that the Christophany. It is the theophany on steroids. It is the greatest thing that ever happened, the greatest revelation of God's nature and of God's love and of God's person. And in Jesus, we see all that we need to know of God. But God shows up in lots of places before and after Jesus in Scripture and before and after Jesus in the history of his movement among his people. So let's think about theophany. What do we learn when God shows up? 
What does it teach us that God bothers to manifest himself, that he speaks to our hearts and minds, sometimes internally, sometimes externally? What happens when we encounter a show place? Now, the Bible begins and ends with God showing up, and ironically, maybe not ironically, purposefully I'd say, both times in a garden. So you have two garden weddings, actually, I always say, but at the beginning you've got the garden of creation, or we call it the first garden, and then you have the second or the last garden of revelation, where again there is a wedding, this time of the church and of Jesus. Remember the lamb and, and, and his church. And when we see those two appearances of God, those are the bookends, if you will. So I'm going to open and close this series with those two bookends. And it should be true that if we see one theophany, it should tell us about all theophany. See, our experience may change, our perception may change, but God never changes. So the same God is being revealed in every situation. We may learn something new, but mostly what happens is the context is different. So we're going to discover, for example, that we experience God very differently on the mountaintops of our lives than we do when we're in wilderness wandering periods, like we'll study next week. So the Bible begins and ends with God showing up in a garden. Let's look at the first story. Now, if I had my way, I suppose, we could just stay here all day and read through the first three chapters of Genesis and study them in great detail, but I'm pretty sure that's not what you have in mind. You're planning to beat somebody to the cafeteria, and so we're going to make sure that you do. And for that reason, what I've done is just to pick out some verses here that are relevant to Theophany, and we'll fill in the story. But we start at the very beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, in the beginning, God. I mean, this is how the whole story starts. God shows up. Now listen, God is eternal, therefore God always was. There was something happening before what is here is recorded. There might have been some part of creation that was happening before this is recorded because the next verse indicates that's possible. We don't really know. We're told what we're told here, but this is when God begins to show up to our perception because until we're being created, there is nothing to perceive the God who is there, at least in terms of his creation and his image, us. We are made for theophany. We are designed to experience God. We are made to relate to him, to love him and be loved by him. We are made to perceive his presence. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, it was empty. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, interestingly, there was still nothing there, but at least now you could see it. That's supposed to be funny. So God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, a first day. Now, if this is all we had today, and I was just preaching on this text, could we discover anything about theophany, God's appearance, just by this one section? 
And I think the answer is yes. And not only is that answer yes, but I think this will be confirmed a little later in this same passage, Genesis 1, 1 through, through the beginning of chapter 3. So what we can say is that God desires a world of contrasts, a world that has darkness and that has light. Now we take this for granted because we will say something is as sure as the sun coming up tomorrow. I sure hope that's sure, right? Because we're dead the moment it doesn't happen. But we assume we will awaken and the sun will arise. We assume in the evening it will disappear. There will be darkness. And we build our lives around this rhythm. And we take it for granted. But it didn't have to be so, did it? I mean, if God wanted to create a world in which there was always light, God could have done that. And if God wanted to create a world in which there was always darkness, I I mean, God could have done that. It is because of God's design that we have night and we have day. So we have a period of time where we recover and we rest, and we have a period of time where we don't see so easily, especially without Edison's recent invention called the light bulb. Without that, we don't see what's around us when it's night and in the day. Everything is revealed. So all through Scripture, there's this conversation about light revealing and darkness hiding, and the day's designed that way. Have you ever spent time in a place where day and night didn't work quite like it does in this part of the world? Because if you have, it's an intriguing experience. For years, as you know, we, Columbia, had a partnership with Moscow Central Baptist Church. And so when I got here, that partnership was already in place, and we developed it and and took it to a new place. And so I, I went to Russia, parts of Russia, especially Moscow, eight times on your behalf. And one occasion, I went in the middle of the summer, and I only did that once. And one occasion, I went in the middle of the winter, and I will never do that again. So the time I went in the middle of the summer was the strangest and freak to me. Debbie was with me on this one. And the sun just never set. You got about an hour of darkness a day. You'd have sort of a dusk, but, but not anything you'd call darkness. And it was just light all the time. And I don't know how this would affect you, but I'm pretty sensitive to light at night. I try to make rooms cold, dark, and quiet, as you probably remember. And so I would lie there in my bed and try to go to sleep, which Debbie frustratingly never had any trouble with. And she would say to me, can't you go to sleep? And I go, no, can't you see? It's daytime. And for reasons I still can't figure out, Russians do not believe in room darkening shades. They use these these shears. And so when you're in your room, it's just light all the time. And I just said to Debbie, this is wrong. It's evil and wrong. And then you go in the middle of the winter. Let me tell you a couple things about Russian winter. First of all, It is colder than I knew cold could be. I even like cold weather. It was just bone-chilling cold. Second, I will tell you that any place you go, like a church service, they heat the room to about 95 degrees, which would make some of you very happy. And they keep their coats on and everything. So it's cold outside, but you sweat inside. You go outside and you freeze into an ice block. That's what happens. But here's the weirdest thing about Russian winter. There's no light. The sun comes up for couple of hours a day. That's it. Right in the middle of the day and you're just in darkness all the time. And once again, after those two contrasting experiences, Debbie was with me at that one too and I just said, how weird. 
How strange. But what about this lightness and dark? It would seem that God intends that sometimes we see and sometimes we do not. That sometimes we perceive and sometimes we do not. And that may tell us something about theophany. Because what I can tell you is that the Bible is pretty clear, it seems to me, that God sometimes desires to be seen and sometimes does not. That sometimes God intentionally is hidden from us, certainly for his own purposes, but perhaps also, as I'll come to in a moment, for our own good. We can't perceive God all the time. And that apparently is at least in part by his design. Take a look at these two scriptures, for example. Around Christmas, we love the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah speaks the word of the Lord and says this. God says through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So to hear Isaiah speak here on behalf of God, to hear God speaking his word to us, what we would attain here is God is just unknowable to us. He is unfathomable to us. He is so much larger than we are, so much greater than we are, so much more powerful than we are, so much more infinite than we are, so much more everything than we are that God remains something of a mystery to us. We can never know all of God. And in fact, awe and mystery are two of the common experiences in almost every theophany in Scripture. Every time we encounter God, we're shocked by it. We're awed by it. There's mystery involved. So we can say that God is so high we can never fully know him. And yet along comes Jeremiah, and actually even Isaiah said some words similar to this. And Jeremiah, the prophet, in about the same period of time says this, Jeremiah 29, 13. Read this one with me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Oh, so God is intimate. So God is knowable, at least part of God. So God makes himself accessible to us. So sometimes there is daylight when it comes to seeing God. What we can say is that theophany is incredibly rare. It doesn't occur on a regular basis. What we might call internal theophany or perceiving that God is speaking to us may be a little more common. But in general, we will go a lot of days of our life without actively perceiving that God is near. We call that faith. Walking by faith and not by sight because we know, we believe that God is with us even when we do not perceive he's speaking a word. Now, Isaiah and Jeremiah, let me suggest that you guys get together and have a little falafel together and work this thing out. Which is it? Well, it's both. It's both at the same time. The same theologians who've talked for generations about theophany also love to talk about God as being both imminent and transcendent. Probably most profound in the work of people like Martin Buber, for example, but other theologians too have talked about how God is both imminent, that means right here with us, intimate, present among us, and transcendent, meaning meaning so high above us that we can't perceive, so great that we can't comprehend. And God 
by his nature, must be both at the same time. So, seeking him with all of our hearts is vital. Just to know all of God, we need to know to understand his love and to understand his plan for our world and for our lives. We call that whole life discipleship, attuning ourselves to him, preparing so that when theophany does happen in our lives and in our world, we are attuned to notice and not miss it, prone as we are to watch things that are easier to perceive. So God creates light. God creates darkness. God sometimes is in the light. Sometimes God is in the darkness. Now by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And even then, God showed up in the rest of the seventh day, in the Sabbath, establishing it as a rhythm of life. It's not that God disappeared. It's that God was intentionally Sabbathing, intentionally resting. You know, I hope you've gotten good at showing up in this way. But summer is a great time to do it. I have these incredible memories of my childhood, and actually I was just talking to some members of my staff team this week about my remembrance of all the camping trips that my family took. Now, we don't camp anymore because that is not Debbie's thing. And when I said it in the last service, I heard some amens in the back of the room. But I used to love to camp because it meant some things to me. There were some things that you didn't like. If it was hot, you got hot. And if it was cold, you got cold. That's certainly true. Eating's a little less convenient. Bathrooms are a lot less convenient. There are many things about camping that aren't that convenient. But when a family goes camping, they are stuck together. They can't get away from each other. You have to work together to make it happen. You're in tight quarters. You're sharing space and you're sharing experience. But the biggest thing about camping for me is that when we camped, my daddy was present. My dad was there. My dad, the way he did his job, he was away a lot, especially a lot of nights. And there were lots of times I would go Pretty long periods of time without significant communication with my dad. I mean, we would see each other at meals and the like, but, you know, there's all the family stuff. And, and I can remember better than any other times I ever spent with my dad when we would be on vacation and we would be camping. Now, understand, when my family camped, I'm not talking about like three days. We camped for three weeks or a month at a time. Go all through the lower 48 into Canada camp at the beach, whatever the case may be. My dad loved it. I, I, I believe now, I think my mother tolerated it. My dad loved it. And when we were there, we had his undivided attention for that entire period of time. And so vacations were really important to me because on those moments, God showed up through my dad and my dad showed up when we camped. And at the end of the day, what I think we discover is that we are offered great opportunities to show up in periods of rest. Rest is not, Sabbath is not just a time we just shut down completely. It's a time we focus on things that bring restoration to our life. So if you 
Have an opportunity to do that this summer. I'll not begrudge you that. Come back as soon as you're back in town. Watch us while you're away, but focus on the things that bring restoration to your life because that's what God did. See, God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy, the scriptures tell us, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he'd done. Now the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make for him a suitable helper. Now, when God shows up, I think we begin to see in Scripture that several things are happening that are always true. So when there is theophany, when God shows up, I think there are three things that are always happening. First of all, it's always creative. It's always generative. He is always making all things new. Even God's discipline is creative. Even when he is calling us out, that's creative. He's always making us new, regenerating something in us. So when God shows up, we should expect that God is about to do something that will be new for us will take us in a different direction, even if only in small ways, that God is going to create something. The second thing is that it's always nurturing and loving. Even when he disciplines us, it is nurturing and it is loving. Look at God's concern for the first man and ultimately for the first pair. I'm going to give you something to do. You are in my image to take care of the earth. Remember, he asked Adam to name the animals. That's the funniest thing, the coolest thing. Adam participates with God in the creation. But then he says, look, I want you to have a helper. And he nurtures and cares for him. So when God shows up in your life, though it may be frightening, it is always an expression of love. It is always an expression of the greatest good that can come out of your life. And third, and finally, and I, I think this is the thing that we can carry away with us, that when, when, God, when God shows up, he always has a call for us. When God intervenes, whenever there is a theophany in the Bible, it always involves something that God is calling the humans he's presenting himself to, manifesting himself to. He's calling them to do something, to be present, in his name. So when God shows up, watch out. He's got a great plan for how he intends to use you. Now these things are going to recur as we look at these show places in the Bible. Now a terrible thing happened and the man and his wife rebelled. They used their freedom in the wrong way. And so they did actually approach the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that represents their rebellion against God trying to go their own way. But it's the next passage that gets really interesting to me, and I'll leave you with this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, what are we to take from this? That one little passage tells me a lot. 
I think if I asked most people, what do you believe that the man and his wife's relationship with God was before the fall, before sin and shame entered the world? Most will say they were in communion with God all of the time. No, they were not. If God could take them by surprise in the cool of the day, If they had to listen for God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it means he left them alone a lot, doesn't it? And that must have been by God's design. Could we accurately say that our God is not a helicopter God? Elijah talked about the freedom we have. God's given us this amazing freedom made in his image. He's given us this free will, this capacity to move through many days of our own accord. He he doesn't tell us every little thing to do. He he doesn't tell us every solution to every little problem. He gives us us a, a commandment to follow him. And then he says, you know, sometimes you'll figure that out yourself. Even with Adam and Eve before there was sin and shame in the garden, God apparently visited with them in the evening, perhaps in the morning, but left them to their own devices through the day. And I think here God teaches us something valuable about parenting. I'm just going to tell you from my experience, if you want your kids to become independent, to be able to live without your support, I, I assume that's important to many of you. If you'd like for them to of their own free agency be able to do great things, to be great citizens. You cannot be helicopter parents. And I see in our day and time more helicoptering going on than I've ever seen before. Parents who won't let their kids out of their reach. Well, if they can't make their own mistakes and create their own problems, they can't become God's own people. You need to understand how vital it is that your kids have freedom. And that's what God gives to us. A great parent knows they've succeeded when their kids are functioning as wonderful citizens and followers of Jesus without having to ask them questions every other minute. Now look, your kids will still show up once in a while and need something. But mostly you start to relate to them as fellow adults who are growing into the world that God has made for them. God leaves them alone. Now this tells us something about theophany, doesn't it? One of the reasons that God hides from us sometimes, if we can use that expression, it's not theologically correct exactly, but let's say this. One of the reasons God hides from us is that by his design, we can't really seek him, we can't desire him, we can't love him, we can't pursue him if we're not doing it in our own freedom of will. And and it is not possible for us to grow into the people God wants us to be if we're having to hold his hand all of the time. God's not a helicopter God. And so sometimes we need to understand that when we don't sense God is near, that might be for our own good. One theologian said, God is way more present when we don't perceive he is than when we think he is. I think that's fascinating. It means that God is present in his absence. It means that God is intentionally sometimes transcendent from us, distant from us. So we're watching for the moments when God comes and walks in the cool of the day, aren't we? We're watching and waiting for that moment when we can fellowship with him, even for a short period of time, and glean something of his heart 
and his desire and his will. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's so funny, like you can really hide from God. Behind a tree. But the Lord God called the man. And he said, where are you? First question God ever asks of us in the Bible. Where are you? This is indicative that when God does appear, when we have these moments of theophany, God is asking us, where are you relative to me and our relationship? And he is issuing a call to our lives to be closer to him and to serve him more effectively. And ultimately what we're going to see is that God is going to ask us to show up just as he shows up. He's going to teach us to show up in the world and in the lives of others. I'm not going to close this with a dramatic illustration because the purpose of this sermon is to open doors for the weeks to come for my colleagues and for me because we're going to learn a lot in the weeks to come by looking at these show places about what we know when God shows up, about what God shows us when he shows up. But here's what I know for sure. Where God is, that's where we want to be. The question is not, will God join us where we are? Too many people's language and prayers sound like that to me. Well, Lord, here I am doing what I want to do. Would you please show up in the midst of it? The question is, Lord, what are you doing and how can I join you? Where are you and how can I become a part of what you're up to? Where God is, we want to be. So we've got to learn to discover where God is. Secondly, God shows us a lot when he shows up. He teaches us who he is, and he teaches us who we are. He shows us what he's doing, and he shows us what we can be up to in his name. When God shows up, we want to make sure we take notice, because this is when he reveals to us who he is. Well, show places. There are so many of them in Scripture, we can never cover them all, but we're going to cover some big ones. So across the course of this summer, I'd like for you to be looking for them too and thinking about your own experience and your own life and sharing with us, let me tell you how God has shown up in my life and how I still anticipate he might. Let's look this summer at some amazing show places. These won't cost you a thing accept your whole life as you follow Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would cause your Holy Spirit to fall upon us and that this study would be rich for us. And as we see the show places in Scripture, the theophanies, the places where you've revealed yourself, been manifest, teach us how you are still showing up in our world and in our lives in the same powerful, dramatic, amazing ways. Attune our hearts that we might sense your presence more often and give us greater faith that we might accept the times when you're distant from us, all according to your plan. We thank you for who you are, Lord, that you are transcendent. You cannot be our God unless you are, that you are high above us. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. But Lord, we thank you so much that you desire to be imminent with us, present right now, knowing us and relating to us intimately. We seek you, Lord. 
We follow you, and we ask that you would reveal yourself to us in this time. And if there's anybody hearing my voice today who has not yet understood how powerful it is to encounter you, experience you, and your love, I pray that through Jesus Christ you would show up in their lives right now, that they might decide to follow Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends, I hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you for your ministry of presence today. There's nothing like being present. Show up. You go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. We'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.